Good morning. good morning. Praise the Lord. Y'all always give good mornings real good. I like it. Y'all conditioned. Well, it's an honor to be before you this morning. I love God's body. I love the universal church. I love the Christians that aren't in this building as well as the Christians in this building. But I have a special familial love for this church, though. And I thank God for you guys. Um, I had so many people come up to me this morning and tell me that they were praying for me. And I'm overwhelmed. Thank you, Jesus. Love you back. (laughs) All right. Humility. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm crying already. Humility. All right. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to be doing verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. So this morning, we will explore the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Our parable this morning, in my opinion, is a very plain depiction or picture of two different heart postures or dispositions. We'll examine the pride of the Pharisee in our story in contrast with the humility of the tax collector. But first, let me ask you a question. What words come to mind when you hear the word Pharisee? And feel free to shout some things out. Hypocrite. Self-righteous. Legalistic. Any more? Authoritarian. All right. Very good. Those are all great. Those are all great. But what if I told you that the Pharisees were actually not the bad guys? Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. But instead, they were actually symbols of righteousness. Wow. My mind's blown, too. So when Jesus needed an example of righteous behavior, he would often refer to the Pharisees. For example, in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, there's a group of tax collectors and sinners who were gathering around Jesus, and the Pharisees began to accuse Jesus, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Not that Jesus ever needed to justify his actions, but he humbly justifies his outreach to sinners by comparing sinners to lost sheep. At the conclusion of this parable in Luke 15, verse 7, Jesus says, just so I tell you, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Who do you think Jesus was considering the righteous 99 other persons who had no need of repentance? Yeah, exactly. Again, mind blown. How about that? Also in the parable of the prodigal son, we have the same sort of lesson being taught. If you remember the story, you may recall that the older brother gets jealous of the attention that his younger brother gets after he repents. The younger brother who ran off and lived in the, in the sin and, and, and did everything he wanted to do and destroyed his inheritance, he represents the sinners that Jesus welcomes with open arms. And on the other hand, the older brother, he represents the Pharisees who criticize Jesus. Look at what the father says about the older brother or the Pharisee, In Luke chapter 15, verse 31, he says, And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all 
that is mine is yours. Wow. Again, Jesus refers to the Pharisees in a positive light. Why? In spite of their behaviors, they were still God's chosen people. They were the ones who should have been the example for living out God's laws, right? You might be asking yourself, why is any of this important, right? Well, our passage this morning makes absolutely no sense if you are under the assumption that all Pharisees are bad. The Pharisees were expected to exemplify righteousness. If the Pharisees represent evil and sin, then why would it be shocking that the Pharisee in the parable this morning behaved like he did, right? And how could Jesus make this comparison if the Pharisee is considered to be just a lost, just as lost as the tax collector? So if they're on equal ground, then what's the point, right? The truth is, Jesus himself was theologically and philosophically a Pharisee, and so was the Apostle Paul. That's why Jesus was always saying the hardest stuff to them. Disagreements are always harder when it involves two parties with the same convictions. We typically don't get into arguments with people that we consider other or outside of our camp because we can just dismiss them, right? If they're not part of the body that we're in or whatever, we can say, oh, I just, I'm not listening to what they're saying. It wasn't that easy. We also know from various texts of scripture that many Pharisees accepted Jesus. Two bigger name examples would be Nicodemus and Gamaliel. Many believers among the Pharisees kept their identity as Pharisees after they became believers. Isn't that something? Just in case you don't believe me, listen to Paul in his own words in Acts 23 verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part of the Sadducees and the other Pharisees He cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. How about that? Now, let's take a brief look at how tax collectors were viewed amongst the people. The following is a brief quote from a monthly Messianic Jewish publication called Torah Portions. They considered the tax collector to be traitors, Roman collaborators who made their living through dishonesty and extortion while raising money to support idolatry. The so-called sinners consisted of many ordinary, irreligious, and Hellenized Jews, more or less equivalent to the normal, secular person who doesn't give much thought to religious observances or the Bible's moral standards. So a tax collector, in other words, is equivalent to your everyday run-of-the-mill non-believer next door, as well as your nominal Christian, meaning someone who claims to know Jesus but lives as if they don't, right? So that's speaking to both parties. Now that we've got the housekeeping out of the way, let's dig in. And I promise I'll address everybody in here's pride and sin and all of that real shortly. Just bear with me. All right. Let's read... Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. So I'm going to read through that. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off 
would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Lord Jesus, I come to you humbly this morning. Father, asking that you would speak to your people. This is not my word. This is not my message. God, it's your word and it's your message. So I'm asking, Father, that you would land this plane, that you would speak the truth that needs to be spoken through me this morning. Use me as your willing vessel, Lord God. Apart from you and your spirit, I have absolutely nothing, Father. I don't want to be Roman dependent. I want to be God dependent. And Lord, I just ask that you would move this morning for your own glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. A man named Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. once said, humility is the first of the virtues for other people. Yeah, I I agree with him. To be completely transparent with you all this morning, I'll have to admit that this is probably one of the most difficult messages I've ever prepared. It wasn't difficult because the passage was hard to understand. It wasn't difficult because I took pains in so much preparation. What's been difficult is spending an entire week being convicted about areas of pride in my life that I didn't even realize were areas of pride. Mm. (laughs) So, Chad, wherever you are, if humility comes up again, I'm not doing it. (laughs) Just let's get that out of the way. All right. No, but in all seriousness, I've been challenged. I've really been challenged um, by God in the secret places of my heart this week. Um, And I'm not pleased with everything I found there. By way of an introduction, I want to share a personal story that happened to me like a long, long, long time ago in a land far, far, far away. No, it was like five or six years ago, honestly. Um, As many of you know, my current occupation, career, um, is as a video guy. I'm a video producer and editor um, by trade. Um, and then at night, I'm Batman. No, I'm, <laughs> no actually, I'm, I'm black man, but that's all right. That's all right. Anyway, um, <laughs> there, there was a period um, on my job um, where there was a lot of inner conflict and turmoil within the company Um, people that I had grown close to um, on the job were like moving on, leaving for various reasons. Um, The systems and processes that we had in place at my job um, to ease the workloads and all of that stuff that exists today did not exist at the time where this incident happened. So to to put it plainly, I honestly felt overworked, underpaid, underappreciated. I was burnt out. Um, has anybody else been there? Yeah. Um, I had also gotten to a point where I felt communicating the issues was pointless because I felt they weren't listening to me anyway. Um, I'm certainly not proud of this, but my response was to be rebellious. To be honest with you, my response was to be rebellious. Um, not in a way that would hurt the company, but I felt I had to do something to get their attention in my pride, right? Um, 
man, I'm going to tell y'all the truth. I probably walked around that office with the meanest mug you've ever seen for probably four or five months. I mean, nobody got a smile from me. Nothing. I was short with people. I was quick-tempered. I was impatient. I was just everything that I shouldn't be. Um, So one day I was confronted by my manager, and I unloaded all my beef. Like, he finally was like, well, something's wrong, apparently, after five months of staring at me mean. I, I should probably ask you what's wrong. Um, and so I, I just unloaded. Um, but I didn't listen to her. Like, I just got my stuff out. And I was totally unconcerned with what she had to say, if I'm be honest with you. Um, and, and actually, instead of listening to her, I, I appealed to the higher-ups. I said, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to somebody that can do something more than you. Um, I believe that I had been promised some things on that job. I believe, actually, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So now that I look back, I, I realized that I was all about me and my rights and what I wanted and my pride. Like, I didn't, I wasn't owed anything. Um, I can see that I was puffed up and thought that I deserved more than what I had been given. One of my biggest gripes was that the office structure was beginning to feel like a prison to me. The way our business was structured at the time had us in a state of always kind of like being on call, if that makes sense. So if you took 15 minutes to take a walk, or if you got caught up in the hallway talking to your buddy like Albert, right? He's right in my building. You would miss something important, maybe, during that time, or feel like you were under this pressure or under this gun that if I miss any second being right here on call, on point, that I'm going to drop the ball. Um, and so I was really struggling with that. And so finally we got the meeting together. We got with the higher-ups, and I got the meeting I wanted, but of course it didn't go the way that I wanted. Um, I came in angry. I came in arrogant with a prideful attitude. The owner of the company who had made the state had made this statement to me when I first started the job. And this was what I was hanging my hat on. When I first started the job, he told me, everybody who works here is their own boss, right? So I took that to mean what it meant. Like I'm responsible for me. I take care of the things that I need to take care of. And I don't have to have somebody staring over my shoulder looking at every little thing I do, but instead I felt that I was getting the opposite of that, that everybody was, what are you doing? Where are you going? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, my work's done. Leave me alone. That was really just my, my attitude at the time. And so when we get into the meeting, I tell the owner, I said, hey, you told me when I started here that we're all our own bosses. And I said, I feel like you guys are just keeping your thumb on me and I don't get to, I don't get a chance to even get a breath. Um, and so he, he pretty much killed that real quick with, that's not what I meant. It was that simple for him. I was carrying it around, heavy with it, and thinking it was important. And he said, that's not, that's not what I meant. Um, actually, would you like to be an hourly import, uh, employee instead of a salaried employee? I said, no, 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 no. We're going backwards now. We're going backwards. He's like, yeah, you can go hourly and you can take as much time as you want. I'm like, no, I don't want that much time. That's not the point. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, just safe to say this backfired on me, right? And so now here's the good part of this story. Um, my manager, who was in the meeting, was also somebody that I had talked to Jesus about 
with, uh, many times. I've talked to her about Jesus so many times. I've prayed with her in the office. All of these things. And, and here, I'm being this arrogant, prideful jerk and calling myself a representative of Christ. As we were talking um, in the meeting, the weight of the fact that I'm supposed to be a Christ representative and I had not represented him well hit me hard. And I started crying in the middle of the meeting with the two owners and the manager. I'm just breaking down. And I'm like, I am sorry. I am so sorry. I should not have treated you that way. And I, I, I repented of what I had done and I asked for forgiveness. And I tell you, God swept through that room in such a way. And what, what was at the time a very tense situation completely flipped. And it went from argumentative to understanding. It went from my way or the highway to compromise. It went from we can, we can make this work. And that was just because of humility and submitting to what God wanted me to do in that moment. I apologize for this mic. It's my, it's, this mic is, uh, you know what? I'm going to buy a mic one day. And then I want to get my video camera and take this one outside and get a big sledgehammer. And anyway, anyway, we can record it. All right. So this was one time that I had the Jesus response when my sin was called out. But I can tell you now, this is not my normal response by far. In fact, my pride this morning would have me not tell you that I got into an argument with my wife just the other day and when she confronted me over a sin issue and I yelled and I was not Christ-like. But pride would want me to not let you know that, right? So you have this good picture of me, right? Like, Roman's always calm and he never gets angry like that. No, he does. Roman's got pride issues. Roman's got anger issues. Roman's got all kinds of issues, but they're in God's hands and he's working on them. Um, but me yelling at my wife um, and, 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 and feeling the weight of that afterwards, that led to some honest conversation about who I think I am as compared to who I actually am. I'll tell you this. As a result, I did some honest soul searching, repenting and weeping, of which has now birthed a new sense of purpose and responsibility. I had to share this story because... I don't want anyone to see me painting myself as a hero in this message. I am far from the hero. And I identify with the Pharisee in this parable more than I could care to admit. If you want to find out if you have hidden areas of pride in your heart, all you have to do is watch how you respond to being confronted with a sin issue. If you want to know what's there, let somebody confront you on a sin issue. Are you defensive and self-righteous when confronted? By self-righteous, I mean instead of owning your mess, you point to how good you've been and all the things you've done right as a means of defense. Is that what you do? 
Maybe your self-righteousness and pride, it's not like mine. It doesn't manifest in anger. But instead, you, you just have a lack of interest in the opinions of others, which is another way of saying you regard yourself as being more important than they are. So why should you listen to them? Do you have a tendency to blame others and focus on their faults as opposed to your own? Or do you exhibit the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and gentleness when you are confronted over your sin? In our parable this morning, we will see a Pharisee who has a false sense of who he really was on the inside because he had only concerned himself with how he looked on the outside. And on the other hand, we see a tax collector who knew exactly how unworthy he was before a holy God. And this produced in him a heart of humility that made his prayers acceptable to God. I have one point and one point only this morning. So what is it? First Peter chapter five, verses five and six is where we're drawing this point from this morning. And I'm going to pick up from the second verse in the, the second sentence within verse five of first Peter five, five. And it says, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Luke 18, verse 9, he also told this parable to some. So we're diving back into our core scripture this morning. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Notice the verse says, "Who some who trusted in themselves. These were people who were not trusting in God for their righteousness, but themselves. The folks Jesus is addressing thought that they had perfectly met all the demands of the law, and they considered anyone who failed to do so a sinner. The Pharisee in this parable is a picture of self-righteousness. And though Jesus uses a Pharisee as an example here, the parable itself is not addressed to the Pharisees. It's believed that Jesus is directing his words towards prideful self-righteousness in the hearts of his own followers. Hmm, go figure. Now, as I thought about that, I said, allow me to take some liberty here and imagine what might be happening. So this is my imagination. Man, Jesus, I'm so glad I get to walk with you and be one of your disciples. I'm not like them old whack Pharisees who keep trying to kill you. I don't know. I don't know how them dudes going to make it into uh, heaven in which Jesus responds. Let me tell you a story about a tax collector and a Pharisee. That's kind of what I feel like was happening. Maybe, maybe. Now, this is not in the scripture. This is me taking some liberty. So don't call the church like, where do you find that? That's not in the scripture. It's not in the scriptures. It's my imagination. <laughs> All right. And I'm just thinking maybe they were standing around and Jesus was like, I need to check my disciples. They're, they're, they're getting a little bit prideful themselves. And, and I can only imagine that maybe some pride would creep in if you get to walk with Jesus. Quite possibly that they probably had some pride issues going on. Other commentators believe he could have just as well been speaking generally 
to Jewish people who had prideful attitudes. Nonetheless, this is crazy. Nonetheless, that's the devil. Lord, we just call on you right now. We're not going to let the enemy destroy what we're trying, what you're trying to do. Your word will go forth. I ain't worried about this mic. If it fall off, I'll scream at y'all. All right. <laughs> exactly. All right. So some commentators believe this might be just talking to Jewish people in general with pride. Nonetheless, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, though Jesus' message here is directed towards the Jews, it's not only for the Jews. There's something to be said about the type of prayers that are acceptable to God here as well in this verse. If you have confidence in your own righteousness and then contempt for others, this is a combination that will surely hinder your prayers. So that's just a side note for you. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. There's something to be said even about the Pharisee's posture, that he stood by himself. He was prideful even in his posture. Isaiah 65.5 gives us a great picture of this type of heart attitude. It says, who say, keep to yourselves. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. And as we know, the Pharisees were hyper-concerned about ritual purity. So it wouldn't be uncommon for a Pharisee to want to keep some distance between him and others. But this is certainly not the heart attitude that pleases God. True religion is humble. People who have trusted in Christ for their righteousness believe that in themselves, in and of themselves, they are completely unworthy of the grace that Jesus has poured out on them. When you trust in Jesus and not your works, accomplishments, or abilities, you become a person who's able to count others as being more important than yourself. When your hope and trust is in Jesus alone, you are supernaturally enabled to love those who give you no visible reason to want to love them. This is a very much diff- this is very much a different attitude than that of the Pharisee who says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. When the Pharisee says, God, I thank you, even this statement was his way of appearing to be pious. Look at the subtlety of sin here. Notice he didn't say that he had made himself better than other people that he listed in the verse. Instead, he gives that credit to God as he should. But the fact remains that he was approaching God with all the outward boxes checked while internally his prideful heart was far from God. That's a scary thought, right? That's a scary thought because we can get up every Sunday and put on our Sunday's best and come in here and say the right words, and move the right way, and wave my hand when it's time to wave my hand, and all of that, but don't know God. That's a scary thought. And and Jesus talked about it over and over and over in the scriptures, about that danger, something that we should guard against. Before we move on 
I think another distinction needs to be made in this verse. The things that the Pharisee was disingenuously thanking the Lord for were all good things. They were certainly things that you shouldn't be doing, right? It's good you're not an extortioner or, in street language, a gangster who takes people's goods by force or violence. It's good that he was not unjust. The unjust would be someone who has gained someone's property through fraudulent dealings. It's good that he was not an adulterer. It was also good that he was not a tax collector in the sense that they had a reputation for being dishonest and oppressive. However, it's not good when he used his good works as a way to make others feel unworthy. But the problem with pride is this. Pride strives on competition, meaning there's nothing to be proud of if we're all equals. Pride lives in a place called better than you. A prideful person can't just do well. They're not happy until they do or have something better than you. Luke 18, verse 12. He says, the Pharisee, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's really pouring it on thick now. There was nothing in the law of Moses which made a twice a week fast necessary. There was only a single fasting day in the year that was prescribed. That was the day of atonement. By the time of the prophet Zechariah, the one day fast had grown to four. But fasting twice every week was a burdensome observance that was added later through the oral tradition. Thursday and Monday were the appointed fasting days because tradition related how on those days Moses ascended and descended from Mount Sinai. So again, we see the Pharisee exalting himself. Look at me. I go way above and beyond everyone else. He then goes on to add even more to his list of better than you. He says, I give tithes of all that I get. The Mosaic law only prescribed that they tithe of corn, wine, oil, and cattle. Later rabbinic schools would teach that everything should be tithed all the way down to things as small as mint and cumin. Imagine having pride in giving God back a portion of something he gave you. Think about that. To have pride in his tithing was him going, God, you gave me all this stuff that I'm giving you back. Um, But yeah, I did that. It makes no sense. We are only stewards of the thing that God gives us. So it was no right for him to have pride in that. While the Pharisee is continuing to pump himself up by claiming how much better he was than others, I guarantee he wasn't holding himself to the standard that Jesus holds us to. Again, he had checked all the boxes, which in his mind gave him some kind of claim upon God. But did the man who said he wasn't an adulterer ever think adulterous thoughts? Hmm. The man who said he's no extortioner is in fact attempting to extort God right now. Hmm. See, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God's standard is much higher than our standard. The Pharisee was holding himself, if he was really holding himself to the true standard, he would have seen how bankrupt he was before a holy and righteous God. Luke 18, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, 
would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Wow. This is humility exemplified. The tax collector comes to God as an empty-handed beggar, but leaves richer than the Pharisee. The tax collector came with a broken and contrite spirit. He had no accolades to bring to God. He had no good deeds he could recount. The tax collector didn't see himself as being better than anyone. He saw himself as being lower than everyone. The verse says that he beat his breast. This is an expression of grief and anguish over sin. Beating of the breast is actually a sign of grief in most nations. The tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He made no boast of his own righteousness toward God or man. He knew he was a sinner and he was willing to acknowledge he was a sinner and confess it to God. The honest, emotional, selfless prayer he offered to God is exactly the type of prayers that God answers. Luke 18, 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The purpose of the phrase, I tell you, Right at the beginning of the verse here, Jesus, this is Jesus's way of saying to anyone who thinks that the Pharisee was actually right and the hero of this story, he's saying, no, you got it all wrong. You have judged incorrectly. The verse says, this man went down to his house justified. Justified means accepted or approved of God as used here. The word justify means to declare or treat as righteous. In other words, Jesus is telling us that the tax collector's prayers were heard, approved, and answered, while the Pharisee's prayers fell to the ground. And lastly, we see at the end of the verse, the reward due to the humble versus that of the proud and self-righteous. If we approach God with a proud heart, he will put us in our place. He will cause us to be humble if necessary. And for the one who approaches God in humility, he will be rewarded by God. Before I bring this to a close, I want to share a quote from a book called A Call to Excellence. It says, as C.S. Lewis indicates, pride is essentially competitive, is competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. Mm, mm, mm. Thank you, Jesus. How many times have I done this in my own life? The comparison game, right? If I look around at other people and I can see their sin a little more clearly, it, it gives me a little boost, right? The comparison game. Yeah, <laughs> at least I'm better than him. But that's not my standard. You guys aren't my standard. We aren't each other's standard. 
Christ is the standard. And when we're gazing at Christ, we can clearly see that we're missing the mark every single time. Let's take our eyes off of each other and let's gaze into the face of our Savior. So how do we move from being a prideful people to being a humble people? It may sound simple or cliche, but the path to humility can be gleaned from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read that. You can turn there if you want. We'll spend the rest of the time here. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Contained within these verses is the formula for not only defeating pride, but also the path to salvation for those who are in need of a savior. First, in verse 3, it says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah recognized that he was in the presence of a holy, awe-inspiring, all-powerful God. If we're going to be humble people, we must first humble ourselves before the one which it matters most, and that's God. Second, if we look at verse 5, it says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah recognized the depth of his own sinfulness and was overwhelmed by the thought of it. If we're going to be humble people, we must see our sin as it is, as an offense to a holy God that carries a penalty of death if left unchecked. Thirdly, again, verse 5. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So now we see Isaiah confessing his sin. That's the next step. He confessed his sin to God. If we are going to be humble people, we must be a people who regularly confess sin. When we confess sins, we are agreeing with God that his way is right, and ours is not. Again, humbling ourselves before God. And lastly, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So when you confess your sins before God, here's what God promises Look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So to summarize, the steps necessary for humility as well as salvation are one, revere God as holy. Recognize that God is all-powerful and stand in awe of his glory. Two, recognize the depth of your sin and how offensive it is to a holy God. Three, confess your sins to God. And four, receive the forgiveness that God has extended to you and live a changed life through the power of his Holy Spirit. If there's anyone here this morning who does not know Jesus as their Savior, I want to say to you that today is the day of salvation. Today, you can follow the steps we just talked about right here in this message. And in this very moment, you can have your life changed in the best way ever. Don't run from it. I I, I feel it's necessary every time I preach that, that this call is given. Because, you know, we, it's easy for me to preach and only think about the people who are already in the camp. That's easy for me. Like, I love preaching to the people in the camp. But a lot of times, people are coming in our doors who aren't in the camp. A lot of times, people are being brought by friends and things like that and have never heard the message of salvation. And so I feel a burden to share the gospel message every time I preach for what it's worth. Just thought I would share that with you guys. Um, So, excuse me. Romans 10, verse 9 through 11. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so I make my plea to you this morning, unbeliever, I make my plea to you. If you have been spending time running from what you know is true, I'm begging you. I am pleading with you as a dying man speaking to dying people. Every day you turn on your TV, you see tragedy, you see horror, you see all kinds of brokenness. How do you live in that without the power of Jesus? I remember living outside of the power of Jesus. And I tell you, it was lonely. It was weary. I was so hurt. I was so lost. I didn't know where to go. I want to tell you this morning, you don't have to live there. That's not the place you have to live. If anybody under the sound of my voice this morning... It's wrestling with this. I am begging you to shake off any thoughts you have about what somebody's going to think about you by making this step. I want you to shake off what you think you're going to lose by making this step. And I want you to really, in your heart, call on God this morning and ask him to save you. As the choir comes this morning, I'm going to stand down front. And if this call to know Jesus has spoke to you. I am begging you. I I know eyes are on you, 
But when we come to know Jesus, guess what? You're going to have another chance to have eyes on you. Because the next thing you do is get baptized and you're making a public display or confession that you love him and that you're walking with him. So if that's on your heart, don't run from it. Don't run from it. You don't know what's going to happen from moment to moment. You can walk out this door and tragedy can strike. I pray to God it doesn't for anyone in this place. But that is the reality of living in a fallen world. We don't have time to waste. You don't have time to waste. Today is the day.